Genesis chapter 9, we're looking at the uh, dominion, the family and dominion, and we've come to the part, we're uh, looking at the restatement of the dominion from uh, Genesis chapter 9, so I'll reread that, and we've got to the point where we're going to discuss the death penalty and dominion. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. <coughs> Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And then God, God will go on to talk about the promise with the rainbow not to destroy the earth ever again in that manner. So another change in the task of dominion after the fall is the institution of the death penalty for murder. Because of the fall, there needed to be coercive and violent responses to particularly wicked sins later defined as crimes by God's moral case laws within the Mosaic Code. Due to the great violence and murders prior to the flood, God brings to Noah's attention that he requires capital punishment for murder. Prior to the flood, there was widespread crime and violence everywhere. Only Noah and his family's family was righteous. And of course, murder is the unlawful taking of human life. And we would talk about first-degree murder, second-degree murder, negligent homicide, etc., Dominion cannot occur in a society riddled with crime and violence. The godly land, the godly exercise of capital punishment cleanses the land of evil and protects the righteous. That's the whole purpose that the, the civil magistrate has the sword. The primary purpose is to subdue crime and protect your borders. And so liberal cities, because they're welfare states and they define uh, criminals as victims... They do the opposite. They protect the criminals, and the victims have to pay. And they're going to pay for it because all these movie businesses are moving out of Chicago and San Francisco. <clears throat> the refusal of modern secular humanists to execute men clearly guilty of murder reveals not simply a contempt of God, but also the victims and their families. And you see this if you watch crime shows. They want justice. They want punishment. The murderer ought to be put to death. And he rarely is in our day. The modern state often views the criminal as the victim of society that needs protection. But to oppose capital punishment as prescribed by God not only results in many more victims, but also will bring upon that society the wrath of God. And I didn't put the text here, I got another text, but the point is, is that the blood of that person cries out from the ground for justice. And if the people deny justice, God will punish those people. And here's uh, Numbers 35:31. You shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And that's emphatic in Hebrew. Dying, he must die. The death penalty for murder is not voluntary. It's not up to the civil magistrate. It's a command by God. And of course, we're going to learn later from Scripture, it is solely to the civil magistrate. That's why Cain was not put to death. The family can't put another family member to death. It has to be the civil magistrate. The death penalty 
is a command. Murderers must be put to death because man is made in God's image, and murder is an indirect attack and an insult on God who made man. And if you believe in evolution, if you believe that we're just naked apes, we're just evolved from pond scum, then whether you kill people for put people to death for murder is irrelevant. In the Western nations, Europe and America, mostly America, uh, murderers are, are not put to death, but babies who have committed no crime and are totally innocent are put to death. That's our society. The punishment cannot be altered to the varying conditions in society or the differing mental state of the murderer. Okay, the so-called insanity defense. It doesn't matter if you're running around naked with an axe. If you kill somebody, you have to be put to death. Period. Now, a number of churchmen and Christian scholars view the Old Testament civil laws that contain the application of moral laws to civil matters as no longer binding in the New Covenant era. And in fact, we could say that's the majority position among evangelical and Reformed churches. Oh, the civil laws, they've been all done away. We can make up our own laws. That's the attitude, even among a lot of Reformed people today. And that's totally wrong. This refusal to apply biblical principles is especially true of the penalties attached to the civil laws, which today are often viewed as being too harsh. In fact, I have a critique on my website, reformedonline.com, where I critique a minister from Australia. He argues that all the civil laws, all the penalties are purely positivistic, and we have no obligation to fulfill them at all. That's absolute nonsense. Such thinking is unbiblical and must be rejected for a few reasons. I'm only going to consider a few. Number one, God defines crimes... Uh, these laws, these civil laws, as just, and he applies them to non-Jews living in the land. The sojourner, the foreigner living in Israel, had to obey the civil laws. They did not have to obey. In fact, they were forbidden to obey the ceremonial laws. But the civil laws applied. Number two, Yahweh says that these laws are far superior to what the heathen nations possess and should serve as an example to the surrounding pagan nations as to why Israel is blessed by its relationship with God, Deuteronomy 4, 6 to 8. There's no way to get around that passage. If the, civil, if the pagan nations are to look at this law code and say, hey, this is way better than what we have, we better start looking at the God of Israel, then obviously those laws are applicable. Otherwise, why would they do that? And here's, I love, and, uh, and here's number three. Jesus said that not one tittle or one jot of all will pass away till all is fulfilled, Matthew 5, 18. And here's what Greg Bonson writes. God's law does and should have public implications, for he alone can be the sole lawgiver with respect to issues of crime and punishment. When people get so accustomed to doing things in a secular way because they live amongst a secular society, they bring themselves to believe that there is simply no other way to do such things. It is not surprising, then, that they are recalcitrant to have God's law transform the society and its traditionalism or, or progress, take your pick. And by progress, he's got quotation marks around it. The concealed presumption in eliminating commandments from God, which apply to civil matters, social matters, for example, the execution of certain types of criminals, is that a law from God is only valid if I find a good reason for it, that it's a good reason outside of Scripture, or if it does not... Uh, shock my general Christian feelings. And he's got quotation marks around Christian. Such an approach does not live under the sovereign authority of God, but is a reversion to rationalism and inclination. And I've added subjective feelings or impressions. They don't like the law of God, so they find excuses not to follow the law of God. But if we follow the law of God and we apply it strictly to society, we'll find that crime rates are greatly reduced and we'll have a much more law-abiding and safe society. When I was a young guy, 
I'd go to San I'm from California, I'd go to San Francisco, we'd walk around all the neighborhoods. No day, you know, we're 14 years old, we'd hitchhike to San Francisco from San Jose. <clears throat> Never had a problem. You wouldn't dare do that today. Not safe at all. And if you park your car, it'll get broken into. <clears throat> and then, of course, number four, although the New Testament says that the ceremonial laws have been abrogated by the sacrifice of Christ, it's crystal clear about that. Ephesians 2.14-16, Galatians 3.24-25, Hebrews 9.17-28, etc. There are no biblical justifications for abrogating civil laws that are moral in content. Are we allowed to trip blind people now? If an ox falls into a ditch, are we allowed to just let it die and not do anything? There's all these wonderful moral laws found in the book of Proverbs and in the uh, moral case laws, and they clearly apply. They're moral in content. This idea that we should ignore them is insanity. <clears throat> it is a grim and ironic fact that God values human life far more than the state than men does than man does. They'll protest these young people, these millennials. They'll protest and get out and vote for Democrats because some of the states have overturned the abortion laws, so they've made it much more difficult to murder your baby. You might have to drive a couple hours to kill your baby. They'll protest that. But they don't mind when blacks kill other blacks in the cities, hundreds and hundreds a month. They don't mind that. They don't mind when guys who murder five or six women get life in prison and are not executed. They don't mind that. Is that rational? No. Secular humanists do not believe in God and believe that man is nothing more than an evolved ape. Given the macro-revolutionary worldview, one should not be surprised that the 20th century is bathed in blood. The most violent, deadly century in all of human history. The only person that compares would be somebody like Genghis Khan, who did kill a couple million people. He, was, he would offer a place to surrender. If they didn't surrender, he'd kill everybody. Babies, women, men, everybody. <clears throat> the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, killed over 100 million people, political murders, in the 20th century. The Roman Catholic Church throughout all the Middle Ages, throughout all the persecution of Protestants, which is a very corrupt church, today we would say it's an apostate church, since Trent killed thousands of people, at the most over centuries, maybe, maybe 60, 70,000. There's no comparison. So these, these morons, these atheists that argue that religion is dangerous and terrible and we need to all become atheists don't know what they're talking about. The vicious mass murderers of the 20th century, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, and others, were not believers in, in creationism. Man was therefore to them an expendable animal, like a chicken or a goat. One of the illusions of the 20th century held by many has been the eye that Humane actions could exist without Christianity. The farther the United States and Europe gets away from the Christian world and life view, the more chaotic and terrible things will get. Why do you think people are buying guns so much? In San Francisco and Seattle, you can call a cop, you can wait hours. Unless somebody's been shot, they're not going to show up. All human life is God-created and God-controlled. Therefore, Mankind is directly under God's authority. Because Yahweh created and controls all factuality. He knows what is best for fallen society. 
and he is the source of all moral laws. He's the source, the transcendent God. For the macroevolutionist, there is nothing above man. Man creates his own laws by fiat. He simply makes them up. And man's laws are arbitrary and changing. One generation, you can have slavery. The next chattel slavery. The next generation, you can get rid of chattel slavery. One generation, it's wrong to steal from people. The next generation, it's okay. You're, you know, you're only allowed to steal $1,000 worth, and then we won't do anything. One generation, homosexuality is an abomination. The next generation, it's a wonderful thing, and we have parades celebrating uh, fisting and so forth. <clears throat> this teaching, on the one hand, promotes lawlessness, anarchy, and crime, while on the other hand, a godless, lawless tyranny to keep the masses in line with the state's desires. All denials of creationism logically destroy the rule of law, human responsibility, and respect for human life. They lead to a state out of control where the masses are required to bow before the state as God. You say, well, how could the Democrats get any more lawless? The Justice Department is completely lawless. If you're a Democrat, you could do almost anything. They look the other way. If you're a Republican, if you sneeze, you go to jail. Because they don't believe in absolute laws. They believe that they can make it up as they go along. And if they think you're evil, if they don't like you, then they can make up laws and put you in prison. Putin can arbitrarily declare that Ukraine is a bunch of Nazis and we're going to go in there and kill everybody. That's what statism and lawlessness gets you. A satanic hemorrhoid. Putin. Professing Christians who use the public school system are very concerned about racist and transgender propaganda being taught. And they should be. But for many decades, these same schools have been teaching macroevolutionary theory, which is the foundation of racism and all forms of sexual perversion. Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism, Hitler, the Nazis, it's all based on macroevolutionary theory. The eugenics movement, it's all based on macroevolutionary theory. All of it. Because God has created all things, including man. Our universe and existence has meaning and purpose. A universe and man who evolved by chance exists in a meaningless flux without real meaning or purpose. For men or states to kill other men has no more lasting significance than swatting a fly. By logical implication. Remember, we evolved from nothing. We... You know, we evolved from the supposed Big Bang, which has already been disproven. <laughs> this new telescope, this new telescope, has already disproven all the scientific theories. They're finding galaxies completely formed way, way out there where they're not supposed to be, which proves creationism and disproves their theories. Perhaps this explains why all secular humanist civil governments have legalized abortion, which is infanticide or first-degree mur- premeditated murder. The state has, by existential fiat, declared unborn babies to be non-humans. Such behavior is predictable, given their atheistic worldview. What do the Nazis do? The Jews are non-humans. We can kill them. The Slavs, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Poles, they're subhumans. We can enslave them or let them die. Stalin... If you're a capitalist, if you're a kulak, you should die. You're not a human. 
The prohibition against murder anticipates the necessity of civil governments to arise for the purpose of keeping law and order for families and churches to flourish and prosper in their God-given tasks of dominion. Things have to continue. We need the sword. And the purpose is so Christ can gather in the Christ has to come and die on the cross and rise from the dead and he has to gather in his elect. That's the central purpose of human history. Families raise children for the future and engage in economics and science, etc., while the church preaches the gospel and trains Christian families for dominion by teaching the whole counsel of God. <coughs> the goal of the elders and their teaching was to create a community of responsible believers. Remember, the church doesn't own the church might own a church building. But the church doesn't own property. The church doesn't engage in economics. They might have a bookstore or something. The families engage in economics. The families own property. The families leave property to their godly children. The family is the source of dominion going into the future. The churches as well, but the church trains the families to do their job of dominion. The church does, it does not conduct science and art and that kind of stuff. That's the family. They're responsible for themselves, their household, and for their fellow believers. The state's role is primarily negative, for their duty involves criminal justice and protection from foreign attacks. Although these responsibilities imply involvement and oversight of certain aspects of infrastructure, roads, bridges, ports, railroad, railroad tracks, etc., the state is not given any role whatsoever in welfare programs, health care, retirement protections, and the care of orphans and widows. It's not the state's responsibility, according to Scripture. Show me anywhere in the Bible where the state does that. Now, there's a prophecy, Isaiah 53, I believe it is, or maybe 54, about kings and queens being the nursing fathers of the church and giving grants of money to the church for evangelism or whatever and for the church, the church can do charity. But those are, those are not st collected by taxes, those are collected by the booty of war. <clears throat> Paul, writing under divine inspiration, tells us the biblical responsibilities of families. 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The older translations will say infidel. He's an infidel. Your primary responsibility is to provide for your own family, the nuclear family. If you've got extra money and you can help relatives who are not part of your household anymore, they, they're off and they're married, and they need some help, they've got an emergency, you help them if you've got the funds to do so. That's your responsibility. The apostle says that not caring for needy relatives, and especially one's own family, is a denial of Christianity. Failure to do so is a repudiation of the faith. <clears throat> it demonstrates apostasy. There's nothing about dependence on the state, for according to Scripture, the state has nothing to do with such things. There's not one word. The God's law has all this detailed law in it, case laws. There's nothing about the state providing welfare programs. That's the family's responsibility, and secondarily, it's the church's responsibility. In 1 Timothy 5, 4-5, we are taught that children and grandchildren have a responsibility to take care of their aged parents, and in this case, widows. In, in most societies, even today, women usually outlive their husbands by quite a bit. In the ancient world, it was a lot. Women tend to live a lot longer. 
than men. There is a moral responsibility to care for those who brought them up. The expression, let them first learn, means this is a first principle of Christian ethics. To show, and this is 1 Timothy 5, 4, to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Your mother brought you into this world. Parents took care of you. They fed you. They raised you. You may not like everything they did. Few people rarely do. Parents are sinners. They make all kinds of mistakes. But you have a, a, dude, a moral duty to show them respect and take care of them when they're old, when they can't take care of themselves anymore. <clears throat> if there are Christian widows who do not have any Christian children or close relatives who can care for them, then, and only then, does the church step in to help, 1 Timothy 5, 9-10. to Here's 1 Timothy 5, 11-14. Young Christian widows are required to get married and raise a family. You young widows, you have to get married and raise a family. You're not going to be supported by the church. And he gives reasons for that. Well, young women have a tendency to gossip. Gossip's real bad for churches. causes all kinds of problems. So what I want you young widows to do, get a husband, take care of your kids. Keep your mouth shut. Don't sit around and gossip. When Jesus, the firstborn son of Joseph and Mary, was about to die on the cross, he commanded the care of his widowed mother under the Apostle John. Under the Apostle John, John 19, 26-27. <clears throat> you remember it. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And this is presumably because his younger brothers were not yet Christians. All scholars are in agreement that some of his brothers became Christians. But they didn't become Christians until after the resurrection. It is a historical fact that children took care of their widowed mothers in America until this responsibility was taken over by the state and people were trained to place their widowed mothers in old folks' homes. And on YouTube, there's some of these wonderful channels. They just show really old photographs. And you see all these people in poverty in Arkansas and all these, you know, photographs from like, like 1910, 1920. And in these photographs, there's the widow sitting with the kids on the porch with mom and dad. She's not off in the old folks' home watching TV, being taken care of by some minimum wage workers who couldn't care less. Other ethical questions that need to be raised regarding the state's interference in and adopting the responsibilities of families is the fact that the state must pay for such programs from taxes that are not voluntary but are collected by coercion. Taxes are lawful and good when they are used for the state's God-given role as the sword-bearer. They are immoral and they are theft when they go for programs that are the families and church's responsibility. The state does not have a responsibility of charity. And I'm sure most of you here are familiar with that speech by Davy Crockett from the 1800s. <clears throat> there was a really bad fire, and it burned some stuff down. And the Congress was going to vote on whether to, you know, it was really a small amount. It's like, you know, let's, let's give them five grand to help rebuild these buildings. Davy Crockett got up there, and he gave a speech. It's not your biblical, you don't have a responsibility, it's not your responsibility to do that. It's wrong for you to take taxpayers' money and do that. That's the role of charity. It's, the state's, it's not the state's job to take from Peter and give to Paul. And of course it wasn't approved. Yeah, I have a track somewhere where the whole speech is on there. It's excellent. People used to think biblically in this country. Most people did. In addition, 
The giving of charity in Scripture in 1 Timothy 5 is clearly connected to ethics and personal responsibility. People who refuse to work or are poor due to immorality and irresponsibility are not to receive charitable gifts or grants. Paul said, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And he says, when he's talking about caring for aged widows, he says, if these women are out getting drunk and gossiping and causing problems and are not acting like good Christians, don't give them anything. Don't put them on the list. We're not going to subsidize irresponsible, evil people. And that is exactly what statism does. In fact, statism, the Democratic Party, wants irresponsible, evil people because they keep voting Democratic. Why do you think they want the border wide open? They want a bunch of new people to collect welfare checks so they, could, they have power. It's all about power. They, they could care less about those people. They're evil. Democrats are evil. Biblical charity, gleaning, indentured servitude, etc. is designed to teach covenant keeping, godliness, Christian stewardship, and responsibility. The modern state subsidizes laziness, drug use, and irresponsibility in order to purchase votes and enslave the lower classes. And you know something? In the 1970s, I worked in a welfare office in San, downtown San Jose. Well, it was, it was near downtown. It was off Highway, highway 280. <coughs> and uh, I worked there for quite a while. And um, so I got really acquainted with the welfare system and who's collecting welfare. And uh, people come in, drive in their fairly new Camaro, and uh, I wasn't a believer at the time, and uh, they get their checks and their food stamps, and, hey, Brian, you want to come over to my house tonight? We've got a six-pack of Heineken, we've got some really good Coke and weed. They can afford drugs, they can afford all kinds of things, they're driving nice cars. It's a big scam. They can work, and a lot of them were working under the table and collecting these checks. It's a big scam. It's horrible. My, my view is that People that you could say were truly needy was less than 5%. It was a big scam. And we had prostitutes who used to come in. In fact, they were trying to bust one. She was a, a madam over a, a bunch of prostitutes. And she would come in and mock them. She would come in dressed like a nun. And she drove a brand new Cadillac, and she had money coming out her ears. But because they were collecting all money under the table, they could all get welfare and food stamps. And they, they knew it, but they couldn't do anything about it <laughs> because they couldn't prove it. Charity is tied to personal responsibility. <clears throat> they possess the sword for civil justice. The state, according to biblical teaching, has a very limited jurisdiction. Historically, when people have uh, departed from divine revelation and the biblical teaching on transcendent ethics, the state has sought jurisdiction over every area of life. You know what the goal of the Democrats is? They want preschool, state preschool. And the mothers, they want them off working so they can pay their taxes. They want kindergarten to eighth grade and high school. They want it all state. It's all state. It's all run by the state, teaching pro-sodomite rights, pro-abortion, teaching them to be good Democrats. They want state-run colleges. They want the state to run all the welfare programs. There's a really good book I had by George Grant, and it's on the welfare system. I forgot the name of it. It's up, it's up in my library somewhere. And... He documents how when the state found out they could buy votes by giving people money, they basically destroyed, there used to be all these Christian organizations for widows and orphans and helping children uh, with school. And they had, there was tons of these great Christian programs run by churches. 
And the state took it all over and got rid of all that because they wanted power, not because they cared about anyone. Because if you're not teaching somebody responsibility and you're giving them money, you're not helping them. The worst thing to happen to the black community was the welfare programs that started in the 1960s. And you, this has been documented by Bill, uh, Charles Murray's book on welfare. Okay, now we come to dominion and procreation, a very controversial topic. In the original dominion mandate, and its restatement after the flood, there is a command to Adam and Eve, and then Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28, and of course 9.1 and following. The first command recorded in Scripture is to be fruitful and multiply. That's the first command in Scripture. Have kids. Multiply. Be fruitful. And he's talking to a man and a woman, a husband and wife, lawfully married, heterosexual monogamous marriage. It reveals a primary purpose of marriage, not the only purpose, but a primary purpose, and is crucial for the establishment of dominion in the whole earth. It is God's design that the human race be multiplied by lawful marital relations. That's the only way. The animals can populate by promiscuous intercourse. God doesn't care. They're animals, but not humans. But God brings Adam and Eve together in marriage for the purpose of raising up a legitimate God-honoring seed. And there are some birds, there are some animals that are monogamous their whole lives until one of the partner dies. I think doves are that way. And my, my feet are out here. I, the, the, uh, <laughs> I see two doves. The theory of macroevolution assumes that marriage is an arbitrary social construct, but God tells us that, the lawful, mar that lawful marriage is holy. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable among all, and the marriage bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's what God says. As our society moves in an atheistic, secular direction, out-of-wedlock births have exploded. They've skyrocketed. They skyrocketed among the black community in 1957, I think it was 25%. Now it's about 75%. It exploded after the welfare state of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the Great Society. And now among whites, it's, it's getting, I, I forget this, I forgot what it was, it's getting near 50%. It's, it's, a, it's obscene. It's, I think it's like over 50%. The production of bastards, out of, that is, by out-of-wedlock births, is a sinful, rebellious repudiation of the divine institution of marriage. It's wicked. Yet it's totally accepted today. A lot of couples, they get married after they've had their first child. Now the Hebrew word for bastard, and yeah, the word is in the Bible, mamzer, comes from a root to alienate. And it was applied to children born of Jews and Gentiles uh, who were unbelieving heathen. So it's, you've got a broader meaning in the Hebrew. The Greek word vathos describes an illegitimate child, a baby born out of wedlock. Historically, children born out of wedlock would not receive the father's name or inheritance. Now, there's exceptions to that because of corruption. I was watching a thing about the kings of England and King Charles I or II, one of the Charleses. There's a gallery, there's a, there's a portrait gallery. It's got his wife, and it's got all of his mistresses. <laughs> all of them. He had these wonderful paintings of mistresses, and they, they had all, they, they, he bought them houses, he gave them all kinds of money. One of his mistresses is holding these super expensive pearls in the old world were way more expensive than diamonds, and she's holding a pearl necklace he gave her. 
while God's grace can overcome such polluted and rebellious circumstances. Any society that encourages illicit birth, such as the United States, with its lawless welfare programs, will follow a path of greater crime and urban decay. And one of the most predictable things of decide, figuring out who's going to commit crimes in the future is, is there a father in the home? Is there a father in the home? If there's not a father in the home, and of course, if, if the mother's not a strict Christian, which they almost never are because they're out fornicating, that's how they have these illegitimate kids. The kids grow up and they commit all sorts of crimes. It's terrible. That's why the ghettos are so bad. <clears throat> Here's what Calvin writes, and it's wonderful. Whereas God produces offspring from this muddy pool, he's talking about outside of marriage, this muddy pool, as well as from the pure fountain of marriage, this will tend to their greater destruction. Still, that pure and lawful method of increase, which God ordained from the beginning, remains firm. This is that law of nature which common sense declares to be inviolable. <laughs> It's a great, great quote. Calvin's wonderful. His commentary on Genesis, excellent. <clears throat> the fact that the command to multiply is given to man before the fall and then to a saved family. Noah was a godly man. We're told that a number of times. He had faith in God. He had faith in the Messiah to come. Indicates that procreation is for the purpose of godly dominion, not simply producing more human beings. Now, it is noteworthy that God tells us that intermarriage between the godly line and the wicked unbelievers was the precursor to great violence in the earth that led to the flood, Genesis 6, 1-8. And if you're studying, next time you read your Old Testament, keep this in your mind, because this theme, you see it over and over again. No, it wasn't women, it wasn't believing women marrying angels. It was, they were marrying pagan men, warriors, mighty men. <clears throat> When the, and that's Genesis 1, 6, 1 to 8. That led to the flood. When the antithesis between the godly and ungodly is lost, the result is apostasy and judgment. Consequently, the godly patriarchs were exceptionally careful and strict in finding believing partners for their sons. See Genesis 24, 2 to 4 and following. The sign of Esau's apostasy in the biblical narrative was his willingness to marry two pagan Hittite women. This brought great grief to Isaac and Rebekah, Genesis 26, 34 to 35. How dare he marry a heathen? There's no greater sign of apostasy than that. Well, you know, other than maybe going out and joining the mafia and murdering people or something. <clears throat> Isaac ordered Jacob not to take a wife from the pagan Canaanites. See Genesis uh, 28, 1 to 2. God's law strictly forbids the covenant people from marrying pagan men or women from the surrounding Canaanite nations. Exodus 34, 1-17, Deuteronomy 7, 1-4. Here's the reason, Deuteronomy 7, 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. The marriage relationship is so intimate <coughs> and the purpose of Christian marriage is so clear that any introduction of a pagan in the relationship with their anti-Christian worldview makes the godly fulfillment of the dominion mandate exceptionally difficult, if not impossible. And I've been, a, I've been a professing Christian since, you know, around 75, a long time. 
And um, <clears throat> I know a number of people who married pagan women. I did know one woman who married a pagan guy. All of them are apostate now, except maybe one. It ruined their whole lives. It completely ruined their lives. For this reason, God commands not to intermarry with the heathen. Exodus 34.16 and following Deuteronomy 7.3, Joshua 23.12 are accompanied by the primary reason that such unions place a believer into a position of being drawn away from the true worldview into idolatry. Exodus 34.16-17, Deuteronomy 7.4. The book of Judges and the Old Testament historical and prophetic books make it abundantly clear that intermarriage did in fact lead to syncretism, apostasy, and judgment. Read the book of Judges. Read First and Second Samuel. Read First and Second Kings. Read First and Second Chronicles. A disaster. Can a household serve two masters and two contrary opposing worldviews? Can a family work in harmony for a godly household and future covenant faithfulness when a covenantal follower of Satan is in the midst? Paul writes, for 2 Corinthians 6, 14-16, Do not un- be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? <clears throat> and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. How dare you consider marrying an unbeliever? Paul says. Believers are in communion with God and are in fellowship with one another. Husbands and wives must have a joint interest and dedication to the gospel and the whole counsel of God or they will not fulfill the dominion mandate as they should. That's why we're here. We're not here to have fun. Now we get to have fun. That's a, we get blessed by following God. Blessed way more than the pagans. But we're not here to party a pagan husband or a wife is a corrupting example on the children and make it virtually impossible to be faithful to the central child-bearing mandate in Scripture, the purpose of bearing children. <clears throat> now, although the Bible does not say anything explicit about birth control, except that any kind of abortion is murder and merits the death penalty, Exodus 20.13 and 21.22-25, I know people bring up the Onan incident, and they quote Calvin, and they quote Luther, and they quote all these old guys. You have to understand, when Calvin and Luther wrote that, they believed that, what we call sperm, they believed that was a fully developed human being, and they called it a homunculi. And there were uh, periods of history where they believed the left testicle-produced women and the right testicle-produced men. That's where men lived in the right one, women in the left. And a lot of people actually had their left testicle removed because they didn't want girls. Okay, uh, So don't base your views of birth control on Calvin and Luther. God says our goal is to have as big a families as possible as long as we raise them up to follow the word of God and follow Christ. It does teach that having a large family that follows the Lord is a great blessing. Psalm 127.1. Solomon says, <coughs> this is 127.3-5, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. 
So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The psalmist speaks of what children are unto godly and holy parents. For unto such only is any blessing given by God as a reward. It is also as certain that he speaks of children as supposed to be holy and godly. For otherwise they're not a reward, are they? If your parents, if your children are wicked, but a curse and a sorrow to the parents that begot such. And I know super godly parents and some of their kids are pagans and some of their kids are not. That's a tragic fact in our day. Children are to be viewed as a gift from God. What effective weapons are to a warrior, godly children who grow up and follow Christ are to their parents. Such children have a positive function in the gate where business and judicial matters is conducted. And we're going to stop and take a little break. <coughs> we're going to come back and look at dominion and education. The vast majority of professing Christians in the United States send their ch children to state schools. That is a grievous sin. And we're going to see why. And churches that are serious about the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate, the Great Commission, and having a godly future, uh, if churches are serious about that, they would discipline parents and order them not to do this. But that's not the case today. Not even in reforms. There's, there's maybe one or two small reform communities that don't allow children to go to public schools. But we'll look at this very uh, carefully when we come back. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us this task of dominion. And we pray that you'd fill us with the Holy Spirit, give us the love of your holy word and your law, that we would obey Christ and raise up a seed, a future that would follow him. <coughs> and that our children's children would bow the knee to Christ. We pray for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>